never know, this is a first podcast for Daniel Porter. His story from mechanic to investigator, yep, we all get to investigations somehow or another. Take a listen to Daniel's story and you will get so much out of it. Danielisms are what they are. Be curious, not certain. Ruining greeting cards. They stole them to sell them. Let's hear Daniel tell us that and so much more. Today is special for many reasons, but we always do this little pre-call or not pre-call. Well, we did a pre-call, Daniel and I, but we also do right before the episode. And I just learned so much about Daniel. And that's why I think that this is a great episode because he has a really unusual background, which we're going to get into. But we are going to start with our little speed round. Okay. When you hear the word fraud, what do you think of? Lying, cheating, and stealing. <laughs> Lying, cheating, and stealing. Okay. Who makes better embezzlers, men or women? Women. Ooh, by far. by far. Women by far. Oh, I love that. We're going to talk about that. And then since COVID, what is the best money you have spent, either for work or for pleasure? We spent a week in uh, Cosmail. Ooh. That was the best. That was the best. We went April for my wife's birthday. So, yeah. Nice. 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 OK, so, Daniel, let's give let's you give the, everyone your elevator sort of speech. And I was lucky enough this summer to meet Daniel in person. Where were we? Virginia. Yes. Yeah. So I was very lucky to meet him there. He hung around for my episode or my session. It was great. Um, but. Let's and I missed yours because I barely made it to my session. <laughs> but um, tell the audience your background and how you ended up becoming an investigator. Well, as we discussed, it's very peculiar. Uh, when I graduated high school, it was the early 80s and we were in the, coming out of a really horrible recession. There were no jobs, especially in Middle Tennessee. I grew up on a farm and my dad taught me how to fix anything. So I became a mechanic just because I had to get a job. It didn't pay good. Uh, it's hard work. I worked on construction equipment. I worked on cars. I worked on chainsaws, gas, diesel, you name it. Didn't go to school, just school of hard knocks. And I became a problem solver. Good mechanics used to be problem solvers. We didn't have a machine you plugged up that told you what part to change. We actually took things apart and fixed them. And so about six or seven years into that career, I realized is a horrible way to make a living. All the old mechanics I worked with were hated their jobs. They had arthritis. Um, it, it's just not fun. And so about that same time, someone broke into the garage where I was a shop foreman and they stole a service truck and some of the bigger equipment and a lot of the hand tools of us mechanics. So Monday morning, we found the break in called the local city police. They should send a patrolman. He fills out a report. And I'm like, dude, where are the detectives? He's like, there's not going to be a detective. I'm like, well, look, there's handprints on this glass. You can get fingerprints and go get these guys. And he's like, now the insurance will cover the truck and equipment. And uh, it's just not worth it. And I said, what about our hand tools? Because that's a big hit to a mechanic. And uh, they said, yeah, we're not going to do anything. And I got furious. And I decided I can catch these guys. So... I, I thought I, it was like it's solving a problem. I want your car start. You know, does it does it got gas? Does it get fuels? It got compression. I went through this checklist. I, I can't go back in time and catch them going in. We don't have cameras, especially in 1980 something. 
So they have to get rid of these tools somewhere. They stole them to sell them. They're lazy. They're not going to use them. That's why they stole them. So people always came around to garages I've ever worked at trying to sell tools out of the truck of their car. Now, sometimes it was they were down on their luck, and sometimes they were hot, stolen. We knew that, and we still bought them because that's just life. And so I called every uh, garage in Rutherford County where I lived that I knew. I called every auto parts house in every junkyard and said, hey, this is Daniel over at Tommy's Exxon. If anybody shows up selling tools out of the trunk of their car, call me because we had a big we had a big break in. That afternoon, I got a call and the guy said, hey, there's a kid here. And uh, it was right up the street. And I went straight up there and he he was terrified. I didn't threaten him, but he was like, oh, man, I didn't know these were stolen. And I made him follow me back to the shop and we got our tools back. He didn't even ask us to buy them back. He said, look, I bought them off a guy. I'm so sorry. He told me who the guy was. I called the police. They sent a finally sent a detective. He talked to me and they actually went out to these guys' house and found the service truck. They'd already pulled the engine out and sold it and got some of our stuff back. And I thought that was awesome. That was fun. That was cool. It was exciting. And so I started looking at how do I get into being an investigator? I knew I didn't have the mindset to be a patrolman. I'm just, that's just not in me. And I thought FBI, Secret Service, something like that. Went to Middle Tennessee State University Criminal Justice Office, talked to Dr. Frank Lee, chairman, who's passed away, and said, Dr. Lee, what do I need to do? He said, you need a CJ degree. Uh, you can get your job with the FBI. You're the perfect thing. You know, you're you're not too tall. You're not too short. You're very plain looking. You know, they have, they used to have a, a, a cutout that they looked for. They didn't want you to stick out of a crowd. And I said, awesome. And so I signed up, started taking night classes, realized I was too exhausted at night after working in a garage all day to take to pay attention. So and I also couldn't afford college, paying out of pocket. So I enlisted in the Tennessee Army National Guard to get the GI Bill and to get student loans that would be paid back. Went off and did that, came back, and we, me and my wife both got night jobs because we got married way young. And so we worked at night, and she said, you're not going to go to college without me because I know of that happening. And then when the husband graduates, he divorces the wife and runs off with somebody else. So we went Smart to woman. She, Oh, smartest person I know. So uh, terrible taste in men, but smart woman. So uh, we went to college, and then it took us like five or six years doing it that way, and we paid for it out of pocket. And then, um, so we took, so we could have classes during the day and have a better selection. So my mechanic, and then I got out of college, couldn't find a job. At that time, they had changed hiring at the federal level. They were looking to have a lot more diversity. And actually, uh, uh, the recruiter finally took me to the side at career day that I've been talking to for about two years. He said, they're not going to hire you. You're just you're just not what they're looking for now. He said, two years ago when I met you, you were perfect. He said, now, you know, you just without an accounting degree and a law degree, you're not going to get in. And you know what? That's just the way the ball bounces. You just go with the flow. That's my motto. So I started thinking, what can I do? How can I get into this? We had a adjunct professor at MTSU, Bob Prink. He was director of loss prevention at Castronaut, which was a mercantile store. And he was a former cop. And uh, he recruited from his classes, loss prevention associates, and you could get a paid internship 
and work loss prevention. And they were very aggressive. I mean, we used to chase people through the mall, take them down, handcuff them. Tennessee law, you know, that's all good. We had cameras. It was very high tech. And he hired me to be an LP manager. And so I did that for a couple of years. And I mean, I could go on and tell you more about how I got where I'm at, but my problem solving helped me a lot at solving frauds. And then working as a mechanic and having to say, I'm sorry, Miss Kelly, but your car is going to cost about $1,800 to get it running again. You know, dealing with people face to face. And then when you throw a fit, and I'm like, you know, it's your car. I'm sorry. It's a, it's a Volvo. They cost a lot more to fix. And if you don't like that, you take, you know, take it around the corner. There's a guy who's cheaper than me. That, that helped me a lot dealing just in business and dealing with fraudsters. And, and management, you know, you have to talk to management. How did this happen on your watch? But you do it nicely. Well, and you said something, you slipped something in there really quick um, about accounting. And I don't have an accounting degree and I had a finance background, but we both have, I'm going to say not, um, initially it was a chip on my shoulder that I didn't have an accounting degree, but I've turned it into a positive. And I think you've turned it into a positive. We both can do math. And we said this beforehand, we can do math. <laughs> Just, but we're not, we're not traditional accountants. That's true. And, and I didn't even think any, that would have mattered at all. And it didn't at Castronaut. And then I was a private investigator for a few years. I did criminal defense. I did some, you know, capital cases, people on death row. And I did insurance fraud, did surveillance. And, you know, if I'd been single or unhappily married, I'd still be doing it. But I didn't like being away from home all the time. And so a friend of mine said the state's looking to hire fraud investigators for the comptroller. We only did government employees, government officials, and public funds. And we weren't commissioned. And so that's when I first ran into the whole, you don't have an accounting degree, but we've had trouble converting accountants to investigators. We're going to try the CJ thing. And a handful of us excelled at it and then you know some didn't but every time at the state i was there 23 years i kept bumping into that glass ceiling of we well, don't have an accounting degree yeah but i'm i just trained how many people accountants how to do this work and they had accounting degrees so it's yeah it's, it's like i had a chip on my shoulder for years and i just realized that's the system that's the way it works and you know crying about angle changing they Absolutely. Now, going back to the first word, the lightning round, you said um, uh, women by far. Women by far. Tell us a little bit about that and your experiences. Well, the last uh, 10 or so years, I've done investigations of a lot of local governments, county governments, uh, municipal governments, big and small, utility districts, and they almost always have a female who's the office manager, the finance person, and the person in charge, the executive, the mayor or the director of the not-for-profit is almost always a man. Now, there's a glass ceiling. It's still there. My wife bumped into it for years in the private sector. It's there. And also, I think women are smart enough to not take that executive position because it's not a fun place to be. I think, not too pigeonhole, but I think women are much better at detail. A lot of studies show that, actually. I'm a minor in psychology. I'm kind of a nerd. I read a lot of psychology papers on academia.edu. 
So I, I, women are better at details, um, and they make better people to run the office. They multitask better than men. You know, I, we're getting our house ready to put on the market. I'm like, let's do this, and then we're going to do this, and then we're going to do this. And my wife has started cleaning out four rooms instead of let's just do one room at a time and check it off. You know, we'll get that gratification. So we're different. But women are better at details. They're smarter than men. Women, I think, you know, pigs get fat and hogs get slaughtered. If you stay below the radar, you can steal a long, long time and not get caught. I think men engage in more risky behavior. You know, they, they have skewed judgment. So men steal bigger and they get caught. Whereas I think there's a, we only catch the dumb ones. Oh, yeah. Smarts are still out there. So I, I think, yeah, women and and. Being in that central position, they're the, they're the nexus of financial transactions. So, you know, the office manager who happens to be a female or the director of finance or the city recorder, city clerk, they're the one who counts the money, generally makes the deposit, reconciles. You know, even if they're supposed to be divided up, they can still manipulate it so that, you know, Betty Sue's too busy to do a second count and Betty Sue's more than happy to get off on time to not do it. Um, I, I think that females, fraudsters, groom their supervisors to allow them to commit fraud. Let me, you know, can I sign your name on this check? Because if, if we don't get it out, you know, it, it's the lights are going to get turned off. And the boss says, sure. And next thing you know, he signed it. She signed in his name to everything. So that was a long rambling answer. But I, I think women are smarter than us. I know that. I still doubt. You know, I'm... <laughs> I'm stronger than my wife. She's five foot tall and she tells me what to do. <laughs> and she doesn't use force to get what she wants. She's smarter than me. Hashtag never underestimate a woman. I think you saw that in my presentation. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and there is no honesty chromosome. Like, you know. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. Women don't get a more honest, you know, chromosome than men. So, you know. Um, now you, you teach and train a lot. We're not competitors. I say we're colleagues, but we do kind of the same groups. Um, yes. and you have, you have one presentation that I didn't get to see, but you alluded to it. Well, you said the name earlier, but in a different context, Radar O'Reilly, tell the audience about Radar O'Reilly and MASH. Well, I was uh, a friend, me and a coworker drove to West Tennessee from Nashville to investigate a 911 communication district, which is a special little government entity that collects money from phones and manages your 911 distribution calls. So we got there, and the allegation was that they, the, the director and assistant director, the assistant director was a female and handled all the office stuff, were getting extra paychecks, a lot of extra paychecks. So we walk in thinking they're both dirty. The short version is we determined that the female assistant director had been writing extra checks to herself without authorization and without the knowledge of her boss. She even wrote extra checks to him that he didn't know about and forged his name on the back. And she cashed them. So he was clean. And we were in the middle of the investigation and had already interviewed him and determined he had no clue. He came up to me one day and said, you know that uh, TV show MASH, that character Radar? She was like Radar to me. 
she did everything for me. She would put things in my hand to sign that I didn't even know I needed to sign. And that kind of resonated with me because I had to watch MASH with my dad all the time when I was a kid. And I thought, wow, that's true. It's always the person that they trust the most. They give them the most access. And it, it's you call it positional fraud. You know, they, it, they ha- it's the position they're in that gives them the opportunity. And so I just took that and I've created a presentation and I've even created my own little profile. And the reason people use profiles is they work. They should you should use them for certain things. But if, if you can show me certain aspects, I can show there. We call them red flags. Red flags constitute a profile. I so, call them flags. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, I, I, I've created my own little radar profile. And it's, have they been there, you know, anywhere from four to 10 years? And it correlates a little bit to the ACFE report to the nations, which, you know, there's some issues with that, but we're not going to get into that, I don't think. But, um, you know, have they been in position long enough to learn the system to beat the system? You know, are they within a certain age range? And I want to say without looking at my notes, it's like 20, late 20s to middle 40s. Well, you know, that's when your your kids start costing you, not just in high school. Then you get into college, you know, and plus you you're old enough, you're mature enough. People trust you more. So there's several of these attributes that you can that I have created my radar profile. And I, I kind of use it, you know, and, and I'm in the process of getting my PI license back to do some real investigation work because I really don't, I don't say I don't like. When I see a speaker and it's, you know, a retired agent or cop or something who's been retired for 10 years and he's still talking about fraud. And I'm like, dude, you haven't been in the field in 10 years. What do you know? So I don't <laughs> want to be that guy. I, I want to keep doing a little bit of work here and there. So, yeah, but I, I, I can go in and say, all right, this is this is a high risk position, especially the way the attributes that I see to her. These are all red flags. Let's look real hard at what she can touch, because a friend of mine said if they're bent on one thing, they're bent on everything. Yeah. Yeah. So you had an unusual entrance into the world of investigations, but. What are some resources or who are some people who have kind of helped you along the way? You mentioned some people, but have you had resources? And, you know, we talked about this. We're both CFEs and very helpful to our careers. Yes. Well, I would say the number one thing that helped me was mentors. Finding experienced investigators uh, who were willing to say, here, come sit next to me while I turn checks or come sit next to me while I plan this interview and let's, I'm going to tell you how I'm thinking through this. That's number one, but that's just like I grew up in mechanic shop. You start out sweeping the floor and changing oil. And the old timer would say, Hey, come here, kid. Let me show you how to get this head off this Detroit diesel. And you just pick it up, hit or miss, you know? And so it's the same way for me with investigations. And then the other thing was becoming a CFE and I became a CFE back in the late nineties, you know, and um, I'm certain the test is harder now, but it, it, and it, it, it dovetailed nicely with my uh, psychology minor and my CJ degree very nicely. And so this being a CFE has exposed me to a lot of good training that I wouldn't have otherwise had. Absolutely. 
But I, I think mentors is probably the number one for me. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you also mentioned psychology. And I think, you know, I'm a behavioral science, behavioral economics nerd. Do you have some books that you've kind of referred to or in your presentations that you suggest to people? Because I know you get people who come up afterwards and say, because I get it. I want to do what you do. You know, the, the I do a lot of uh, I think the best thing I was I was best at interview and interrogation. That was my big thing. So. I always refer to people to the Wicklander Zulowski method. Uh, I think it's the best. I've attended a lot of training over the last 20 some years. And I always say, if you get an opportunity, take a Wicklander course. And then if you get an opportunity, read any of Don Rabin's books, although it, and attend his sessions. And even at this level of my career, I frequently walk out of his sessions thinking I only got about half of that. I'm going to have to think about it. He's, he's that smart. And his books, are they're not hard reads. They're just very uh, deep. That um, That's the main things. Like years ago, I, Dave Zulowski taught my first Wicklander Zulowski class in like 96 or 97 or something. And he referred us, I don't know cases over there, to a couple of books. One was about proxemics. Yeah. I can't think of what the other one was. And they were very thin paperbacks. Um, those were eye-opening for me early in my career. And I haven't cracked them in 20 years, but they're still on my bookshelf. Yeah. So, yeah, that's probably it. And, and just my, my general readings. But but I'm uh, pop culture fascinates me. If you pay attention, there's so much you can pick up in pop culture that relates to what we do. And I use a lot of those clips in my presentations to make my points. Okay, I did not see this question at all. But lately I talk, well, and I do a fraud and pop culture course. Um, so what are what are some of the pop culture things out there that you like to highlight? And let's, because let, I've got some too. Okay, there's a movie with Tom Cruise and Jamie Foxx. And Tom Cruise is a hitman. And he flies into L.A. and he's knocking off uh, witnesses in a federal drug case. Okay. Jamie, Jamie Foxx is his taxi driver. has no idea he's driving him around for all these hits. One of the guys he shoots falls through a window, crashes in the top of the cab. And Jamie Foxx gets out and he figures, like, you killed him. And Tom Cruise says, no, the bullets in the fall killed him. I shot him. And that's rationale. I use that to teach one of the elements of fraud. He's not a killer. He's a shooter. The bullet in the fall is what kills them. And and when, and I didn't pick that up when I saw them in the movie, but I watched it over on TV. And, and it just resonated with me. Kind of like the radar thing. Uh, my favorite fraud movie is Matchstick Men with Nicolas Cage. Ooh. And Sam Rockwell. They're a couple of grifters. And, and it, it's really good. My wife's a Nicolas Cage fan, and, and even in it, it's just really good. But at some point, Nicolas Cage is talking to his therapist, and, and his therapist says, you're a thief. You're a fraudster. You know, you, you, he said, no, I'm not a thief. People give me their money. And that's true. People give fraudsters the key to the castle. 
They give them the key to the safe room. They give it to them. They don't, fraudsters don't do it by force. And then uh, Nicholas Cage is talking to his supposed daughter, and she says, you don't look like a con man. He said, that's why I'm good at it. That's and, you know, awesome. I'm going to add that to my list. Oh, my gosh. I haven't I don't think I've seen it. Yeah, I, I um, yeah, I, I use those. And of course, now that we're talking, you know, I, I do ethics, a lot of ethics classes because ethics is so boring. And that's the reason I got into speaking is I got attended so many bad sessions or complained at the local CFE chapter in Nashville. And the president was a friend of mine. He said, well, you think you can do better? You do it. And I said, I can. I did training in the Army. I can do this. And that's how I started. But um, I use uh, Breaking Bad as a case study for ethics. Yeah. Because it's, it talks about, you know, fraudsters commit fraud gradually, a little bit at a time. And that's what five, uh, five years on the show of Breaking Bad was this high school chemistry teacher slowly devolving into a, a drug, drug lord. And I use that to say, you know, ethics happens a little bit at a time. You take a Coke, you take dinner at the steakhouse, you take tickets to the Titans game. Next thing you know, you know, you get done. And there's a lot of neat clips and, and stuff in Breaking Bad that I use. Uh, last year, I just started using Ozarks. Oh, yeah. Show. Ooh, are you team Wendy, team Marty or team Ruth? Oh, Ruth. Oh, me too. And the, and the Ruth walk, you know, the oh, walk yeah. she has, arms swinging, nothing feminine about it. <laughs> and and now me and my wife, you know, we'll go somewhere and I'll say, there goes a Ruth walk. You know, you'll see it. Oh, that's so but, fun. Well, but there's a, I use a part from it where when, uh, I think his name's Hector or whatever, the, the guy first asked Marty to launder my money. And Marty kind of smirks and he just a micro expression. And, and I'm not real good at micro expressions. I, that's just, you know, I, I'm just not good at, at those. And uh, but it's like, wow, that's his ego. And, and that's how I teach ethics. I can teach you the, the ethics rules, but we make decisions. It's the decision to follow the ethics or not. And that's driven by ego. Everything we do is about us. If we admit it, every single action we take, if we buy, you know, I'm going to go deep on you, okay? Yep. Okay. Yep. At Christmas, when you buy your kid, did I see one of your kids walk through in the back? Oh, yeah. <laughs> okay. So when you buy a Christmas gift, Christmas morning, are you more excited to open what he got you? I'm assuming it's he or you got him. I got him. <laughs> Why? Because I want them to like it. And that makes you feel good. So the root, the root of that is you want to feel good giving him a gift. And that's fine. But if you look at greeting cards, I've ruined greeting cards for so many people. <laughs> if you read a birthday, you know, birthday card or anniversary card, I am so lucky that you entered my life. I love you so much. I don't know what I would do without you. It's all me, 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 I, I, I. And that's ego. Freud talked about it. We are driven by ego, and ego makes us commit fraud, and it makes us be unethical. Okay, so I have to do a little lawyer bashing here. You know, you know Kelly and the lawyer bashing. Um, what, say it again? 
Kelly and the lawyer bashing. I always do lawyer bashing. And some of the worst ethics training I went to has been by lawyers because mm. what do they always say? I'm not. Okay. What do lawyers always say when you ask them a question? They ask you a question. They say it depends. And then oh, the six oh, yeah. minute increment starts going. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I, I love that you teach ethics because a lot of times, you know, I'll come in for a whole day and I'll say, can I start with my ethics? And then we get to the pink collar crime because, you know, it kind of it's kind of a waterfall. Yes. They dovetail nicely. Yeah. And, you know, I've also joked that I've had coworkers that, you know, I'd rather go out with some of the criminals than some of my coworkers. Just because they dress nicely and wear nice shoes and drive nice cars doesn't make them more honest. No, and well, you know the 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 fraudsters they have to exude confidence. You know, con man. I mean, it comes from the word confidence man. Yep. You know, and so honestly, you know, usually the fraudsters, if you get them beyond the crying and the and the fear, you end up. I'll admit. I've convicted some really great guy. I mean, oh, he's great or she's great. I enjoyed our conversation. Yeah, I'm gonna go to the grand jury, but I enjoyed our talk. Yeah, they're just normal people that make mistakes. Well, and we never know what's going on behind closed doors. You don't know if there's a sick child, there's a spouse that's left or cheated or whatever it is. And I'm not going to sit in judgment. And I know you won't sit in judgment either. And I think that's what makes a really good investigator is we aren't judgy. Well, you know, I, I think you saw something I wrote on LinkedIn about, you know, objectivity. You, I learned that doing criminal defense work. Oh, I yeah. came into that very conservative minded, didn't really want to do it. And the first time I looked at a case like, holy cow, he didn't do this. He couldn't have done this. No way. That just changed everything for me. Everything for me. And, and oh. when I saw the to not do cop bashing, and I've got a bunch of buddies from criminal justice classes and that I've worked with. But when I've gone through boxes of stuff that we got in discovery that they never even looked at because it didn't fit their predetermined time of death or, you know, this person heard this. So anything around that hour is what we're going to look at. And I'll be pulling out. Wait a minute. Somebody saw another car right down the street two hours before that. And the lead detective was like, God, doesn't doesn't fit the case. It doesn't fit the known facts. Yeah. It's like, but it's an investigation. We're still determining known facts. And so, yeah. I've loved doing defense work because, and as CFEs, we don't declare guilt or innocence. We say money is here, ends up here. Like that, you know. So um, people will, well, they used to. They don't, people who know me don't ask me anymore. It's like, how could you have done defense work? You know what? Just like there are bad doctors, bad lawyers, bad waitresses, there can be bad cops. And it doesn't even have to be like intentional. They just might not know it. Well, luckily, MTSU, we had a really good broad spectrum of professors. We had a former federal agent. We had a, and we had a former public, former public defender, Bill Shulman. He's still there. And, and he, he started out saying I was a public defender and people hated me. But when little Johnny got picked up for something, the first thing they wanted was a good defense attorney. Yeah, and that's the that's what I tell people. Yeah. But if your teenage son gets picked up, you're going to be looking for the meanest, nastiest, smartest defense attorney you can get. 
who can hire the best private investigator he can find. Yeah. Yeah. It all depends uh, on whose ox is getting gored. <laughs> oh, this is awesome. I knew we would have a wonderful time. And I'll tell you, you guys, uh, Daniel wasn't like, you're not a huge podcast person. You haven't been on a lot of podcasts, but you'd never know it from this podcast. Well, you know, um, my wife says my eyes are brown because I'm full of crap. <laughs> so uh, I'm an introvert, but when it's talking about something that I, I like or care about, I can, you know, I like to talk about this. It fascinates me and I like to share. And I love teaching people. That was my favorite thing about being an investigator is I was always training a younger investigator. And it's, it's a lot of fun to see them, to see the light bulbs go off. Absolutely. And, you know, eventually we'll have to pass the torch. So we might as well pass it to someone that, you know, hopefully we've helped along the way. And they've helped yeah. us. we got to reach back and pull them up. Yeah. Yeah. And, and everywhere I worked, we were so swamped with work. The way I, I would all, when you got assigned to me, you got the Daniel talk. And, and part of it was I expect you to work as hard as I do. Uh, you could be a partner or a helper. You know, if it, I will treat you like a partner, I'll introduce you as my partner. But if you don't contribute to the work, then you're just going to be my helper and I'll just give you all the scut work. I'll let you make spreadsheets. That's up to you. It's your call. I don't care. I prefer you be a partner and I want you to be the best you can be so that when they turn you loose from training, you can take some of the load off of me because they're killing me. Yeah. Well, see, that's ego. It's all about me. It's all about helping me. <laughs> oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. Um, so as we wrap things up, and this is this is a question I'm sure that you've asked, is what haven't I asked you that you want to tell the fraudish audience? Oh. Well, see, we already covered that. I I I don't think I think it's important that you uh, value your your life experiences to guide your investigations. Documents and spreadsheets don't commit fraud, people do. You're dealing with people and you have to know how to deal with people to do this kind of work. And there's nothing more. It's the it's the funnest thing I've ever done and got paid for is doing fraud investigations. Oh, yeah. And also insurance, doing surveillance when I was younger, you know, investigating a thousand dollar shortage from a PTO all the way up to a 20 million dollar fraud in the city of Memphis. So. And, and if it's not fun, you're doing it wrong or you're working for the wrong people. Oh, that's interesting. I like that. I just did boots on the ground a couple of weeks ago where I went and did some door knocking. Hadn't done it for a while because of COVID. Man, it was fun. Well, you know, I, I've struggled with a lot of the accountant types that I've trained uh, or that even worked for me when I was investigations manager. And they'd say, well, you know, they're not here. I said, you go next door. Well, no. Go to the next store and ask them when they, where did they move? Really? Yeah, really. Um, and actually, so about three or four years ago, we were doing a. Um, it was a uh, feeding program of federal agricultural summer food money, and I had a a new. I was training somebody, and I and we went to this. It was a it was a subsidized rent apartment complex, not in the best part of rural Tennessee, not far from here. And so I said, all right, we're going to go up here and see if this person's home. And she looked at me like I was crazy. She was from an urban area, you know. And I'm like, yeah, we're going to go. And it's so funny. She said, are you, are you black? And I'm like, are you armed? I'm like, you know, we're not armed. We're not commissioned. 
We're going to go up there. I said, yeah, daylight. We'll be all right. You know, just keep your head on swivel. You'll be fine. And and if you're not willing to knock on doors and go talk to people, I mean, that, that's where the intel. I, one of the biggest cases I ever had, a guy came up to me literally at the water cooler. When I was I was investigations manager for the Department of Transportation, not that there's any fraud in the road building industry at all. And he said, there's a guy in the room next door filling out field books. Tell me if we run out of time. And so, uh, OK, well, the field book is it was an old manual hardcover like like this, you know, these nice bound moleskin books. And the PDOT inspectors would write how many foot of pipe. You know, were delivered. How many tons of how many loads of gravel? How many? How, what what they did that day, and then that was the s- documentation to support payments of all this federal road building money. So there'd be twenty, thirty of these field books. That was the supporting documentation, and I mean, I just got to T dot, and I'm like, so he said, it's field books, man. They don't have field books for two entire road projects. <laughs> And so I was working out of internal audit. I was investigations manager. I called one of the senior auditors and I said, I just found a bunch of field books that aren't filled out for a project that closed a year ago. Is that a problem? And they're like, oh, my God, that's a huge problem. But the guy came up to me at the water cooler and just and we were just having a talk about deer hunting and fishing. And was anywhere I go fishing while I was over there. And he's like, by the way, you need to look in here and you need to be available. You need to talk to people. People provide information. You know, documents are dead. So interviews bring documents to life. They give them context. Oh, yeah. And, okay, so I know I said we were closing this out, but you just gave me something that I had written before. So you've done a lot of smaller entities thefts, you said. And a lot of people that I deal with say, I'm too small to be bothered with. The water districts. Yes. Now, you and I pay our water bills either online or with a check. And some of my first cases doing just, as I call it, Main Street embezzlement, some people pay their water bills with cash. And we have to think that. Like, if we don't think how other people live, we wouldn't know because we only pay ours online. You know, I... I'm I'm in the process of trying to write a book on practical tips for investigators. And a lot of it's behavioral. And I call that, you know, be curious, don't be certain. You Ooh, know, I, a lot oh, of people, I love that. You know, you you're a lot of people are certain that because I pay with the check, everybody else pays with the check. But you get into a rural area, they don't. A lot of people pay cash. A lot of people pay cash. Or even money orders. And so you have to be, don't just assume that because you did a a water department in the city of Chattanooga, where a lot of people pay the check, that when you get out to Harriman, Tennessee, that they're going to take, they're not going to take a ton of cash. So you have to be curious. You have to go in there with no preconceived ideas. Um, Actually, that's that's a Bob Prane thing, my old boss from Castro. He said three things cloud your decision making, emotion, preconceived ideas, and prejudice. And and I, that's kind of like my filter. Whenever I'm going out, I try to always remember what he told us. I, I'm really bad about remembering phrases and, and bullet points, obviously. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Okay, we are ending on be curious, don't be certain, because that is 
that is just perfect. It is I like perfect. It. I, I was trying to explain that to a coworker one time, and that's that's what came out. And actually, I think it's going to be a chapter in my book, or maybe even a future LinkedIn article. I don't know. How about both? Yeah. If I can get this house sold and move to the coast, I'll have more time. Oh, Daniel, thank you so, so much. We're going to have you back when you have your book. Okay. Promise? Sounds great. Thank you. I enjoyed it. Thank you. Can you believe how well Daniel did on his first podcast? I can because he is a natural and I knew he would be. It's amazing to be able to share my guests and their conversations with all of you. His radar profile. Love it. And I think I'm going to do a Gladys profile. Be sure to check out his pop culture recommendations. I am and see you next week.